This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Here's looking at you, kids. Hello and welcome to this week's Film File, your favourite film podcast delivered by your favourite film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And hello. What a, what a pretty significant week we've had. Uh, we were talking about this just before we started recording. Um, of course, we're talking about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And interestingly enough, Andy, uh, we, we debated what we were going to do because, well, to be honest, and it's, you know, if it's not your bag, then, you know, this is our personal opinion. We're not particularly royalist between us, are we? No, I've, I've never really cared much of the royal family. Um, I've never never been a big royal follower. I'm, I'm not one who's going to be like flocking down to Buckingham Palace to be caught on camera weeping and laying roses, etc. That's not me. But at the end of the day, this is a significant moment in history and we're living through it. And that's the impact that it has kind of on us is like seeing how the world reacts to this kind of news. Doesn't make me react the same way. But it, I see people reacting to it in the same way that, say, I reacted when Stan Lee passed away or when Carrie Fisher pa passed away or when Richard Adams passed away. You know, they were the people who impacted on my life in huge ways. And I can relate to the sorrow that some people who never met the Queen, because I never met Stan Lee. I never met Carrie Fisher. I never met Richard Adams. But everything that they did meant something to me. So I can kind of get some of the public outpour of emotion. It's more astounded me to see how many people actually do support and follow the royal family yeah, in this day and age. Because it's easy to, we've, we've spoken many times about like, you know, you create your own little bubble. And all around me, none of my friends really are royalists or they've never said that they are. So it's easy to think that everyone's of the same opinion. Yes. And this is the whole like echo chamber thing is like I've created my own echo chamber that I'm surrounded by people who feel the same way as me. So it's surprised me and astonished me to see the public outpouring. And in a way, it's kind of like made me sit up and realize how much of an echo chamber I've created for yeah. myself. I, I'm pretty much in agreement. Um, I was very, very surprised. There were some usual suspects in, in kind of my communal group but there were some some genuine surprises and I, I'm, I'm with you and and you know we're not by any stretch of the imagination by any measure not empathetic to to how people are feeling right now it's just it's just not our bag baby but uh you know this is a huge cultural moment we're living through history and and the thing that that i've been thinking about a lot over the last few days is how significant little things will change, like money, stamps. Yeah. Um, even when you're at events, when you've got sporting events or, or uh, uh, last night at the proms and they're singing the national anthem, just how those moments, those everyday iconic moments will change tremendously and, and the world that we live in will be very odd and very different for some time. And so to put it into context with with film and, and drawing, uh, because you know we are a film podcast show, then we we ought to talk about the impact that uh, the Queen had on popular culture and especially our popular culture. So uh, things like Helen Mirren playing the Queen, 
yep. the amount of times. What was that? There was that lady who always used to double up for the queen. Somebody Charles. I can't remember her surname. Mm. Do you remember? She yeah. was in everything from Morecambe and Wise to, I'm, I'm pretty sure in a Bond film as well, there was an appearance by the Queen in a Bond film. And of course, uh, Danny Boyle's little Bond tribute for the Olympics, yeah, where the Queen actually came face to face with James Bond. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, it has, had, the Queen's life has had a huge impact on like, entertainment and media. Yeah, even down to TV, with, as much as I'm not a royalist, a few years ago, I was raving away about The Crown on Netflix. Yes. Um, which I thought was a stunning historical drama. And it made me, like, you know, really care for the Queen's journey through her life. And, you know, I saw it as, like, this is a depiction of semi-biographical with some fictional elements yeah. put in there of her life. And it made me respect the work that she did a lot more. Did it make me a Queen supporter? No. But it made me respect and identify with the struggles and hardships that she actually had to face. Because it's easy to say that, you know, oh, well, sat on all the millions and millions and all the property and getting all the money from us, like she must have had an easy life. But it's not that easy. Come on. Fame and fortune and wealth doesn't make for an easy life. So, yes, we are living through extraordinary days right now. Absolutely extraordinary. And uh, um, here in England, it will be extraordinary for some time. This is a, yeah, but, a very significant part of British culture. Yeah, everything will be there'll, be, there'll be a national holiday on Monday the 16th when the funeral takes place, which means that pretty much everything will be closed. And then there's seven days of mourning afterwards. So it's going to impact on the world around us for the coming weeks. Aside from that this week, the only thing that I've been doing is battling algorithms on Facebook. One-on-one? <laughs> on one? You've been taking them one-on-one? On one? Is it? Looking at them in the eye. I've discovered how Facebook works, and I made the mistake of posting comments about Zack Snyder. You're entering into Tron territory now. And now Facebook thinks I want to know everything about Zack Snyder, so I'm constantly getting suggested pages of Zack Snyder fan pages. It click. Facebook's not that clever. It picks up on the name, but it doesn't pick up on the context that I use the name in. And so I'm getting all these things of like, you know, here's four frames from Zack Snyder films that other people have copied. It's like, well, every one of his frames have been copied from other things. Block this page. Block this. <laughs> I, I, it's literally, you know, like when you see like films or whatever they do, like the internet and like loads of pop-ups come up and you're having to block, 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 block. That's exactly how I am with Facebook at the moment. I'm having to block hundreds of pages from popping up in my timeline. Algorithms, Facebook, I hate them. I think that the algorithms have changed on Twitter as well, because it's not only if you support something, but if you oppose something, you're now being linked to things you oppose. So it's yeah. quite interesting how they've changed that. I don't know why they've changed that. Maybe to sort of broaden your echo chamber, perhaps. Who knows? No, it's, this is how the machines are going to take over. The machines are doing this on purpose. The AI knows exactly what it's doing. It's making us all angrier and angrier. So they end up killing each other, and then the machines are rule. That's how it all works. What a great idea for a film. It's how it's been done. <laughs> anyway, what have we got for you on this week's show? Well, an action-packed show, as usual. We'll have news, box office, bits and pieces, lots of goss. We'll have a deep dive into Alan Parker's The Wall. Andy and I will both be reviewing See How They Run, uh, which landed at cinemas this week. And then I'll be following that with reviews of Pinocchio, which landed on Disney Plus, and Crimes of the Future, which has got a very limited cinema release in the UK this week. Before any of that, here is 
the news. It's still pretty quiet there in box office land, but what have we got box office figures? So a pretty quiet weekend in the US and UK box offices. The US saw Barbarian, the new horror that got released, open with just 10 million, taking first place. Brahmastra Part 1 Shiva opened with 4.4 million, putting it into second place. Bullet Train still rattling the rails in third place with 3.3 million. Top Gun Maverick, despite being already out on home releases, still pulling some numbers, 3.2 million, taking it to fourth. And DC League of Super Pets with 2.8 million, putting it into fifth. Here in the UK, the public reaction to the passing of the Queen has impacted on the entertainment and the leisure sector this weekend. Uh, In the box office, the top five has dropped 2.9 million on the previous week. And it's also significantly down compared to July, 80.7% down on the total top five from the second weekend of July. But how does it look? See how they run is in first place, taking a respectable 1.1 million. Um, Tad, The Lost Explorer and The Curse of the Mummy in second place with 818,000. Jaws in third place, 524,000. Brahmastra Part 1, Shiva, 516,000. And Minions 2, Rise of Gru, 382,000. Nothing really to get excited about, except for the reasonable performance of See How They Run. So I'm guessing then in the UK, uh, as you said, that that's impacted our box office over here. Um, um, pretty much a chance that it will continue to hit the box office for the next foreseeable week at least. Yeah, pretty much. Um, even on, on the day that the news broke of the Queen's passing, everywhere in the city centre, and we, we met up, and we saw it ourselves. What was normally ghost quite town. busy at Absolute the time that we were leaving town, it was empty because the news of the Queen's passing impacted on society in such a huge way. So what is our first story then outside of the big news? Well, just a quick update on last week's National Cinema Day. Uh, the figures came in after the weekend. And as was expected, new records were set over the national, which should have been called International Cinema Day because it actually was the same in the US as it was in the UK. The £3 or $3 ticket day saw in the US alone 8.1 million people attend cinemas, selling out a plethora of shows of a range of old and new titles. It was huge for getting people back into screens to enjoy the experience. We've not really seen much of an impact and carryover yet, but maybe when the blockbusters start to arrive from Black Adam onwards... Now those people have gone back and revisited their memories of cinema. We'll start to see the blockbusters start to pick up again for the rest of the year. It had a significant impact, didn't it, on on people's idea of coming back to the cinema? Yeah, we know that since the pandemic, there's been people who've been hesitant to revisit the cinema. You know, people have fallen into the streaming at home and the safety and comfort and unsure of it. But, it, you know, people went, well, you know what, let's give it a shot. And they got to have that mass crowd appeal. And it was mass crowds. And what makes it even more pleasurable is that you get loads of people saying that, you know, oh, I don't go to the cinema because people are constantly talking on mobile phones. But the general reports are that the audiences were really well behaved for National Cinema Day. Even on a cheap ticket, people were there for the fun experience. And everyone who seems to have gone has just said that, wow, what a great experience, what a great opportunity. Wouldn't it be great if they could always do £3 cinema days? Yeah, it would for the public, but unfortunately that's not how the movie industry works. And uh, 
cinemas still had to pay the distributors for this. So some cinemas were running at a loss on that day, but it was a way to get people to come back and enjoy the experience. Will it become a yearly thing? Highly possible. I think it's a great idea. I really do. I have seen the impact of World Record Day. Mm. I've seen people, including friends, queuing up outside record shops for for their records on these days. Mm. Now, artists have got savvy to this and are releasing uh, vinyl, which is only available on that day, so it becomes very collectible. I wonder if cinemas can do something similar to that, you know, make it a yearly event and have special one-off showings and special releases that are that are aimed at this one particular day i think it was an, it's an extraordinary thing i think it can only grow and it yeah. at least for one day out of every year you've got something special you've got people queuing up around the block to come in uh, and just make it a real festival of, of a day internationally yeah i mean comic books have been doing it for the past decade and a half yeah. free comic, free book, comic day. book day and a few titles that were struggling see a surge in pickup the following months because it brings new people to titles that you wouldn't have already seen. So maybe this will become a yearly thing. We'll we'll see. Um, but moving over to streaming, and as speculated, Netflix are looking at moving away from the binge model. Okay, yeah, we talked about this. We've said before that we're not really bingers. We'll maybe binge one or two episodes at a time, but we do prefer the weekly drop model because it it... Well, we've done it on the show. It gives you a chance to talk about it, dissect an episode. Like, whereas with a binge model, watch everything in one day. You talk about it the next day, it's gone. It's finished. All the buzz is gone. All the Marvel shows, the buzz keeps going week on week. And at the moment, yeah. Netflix are looking around and seeing rings of power. People are buzzing and speculating and theorizing around it. The Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. People are buzzing, speculating, and week on week, it's growing, it's growing. So they're now thinking, maybe we need to get on that. Now, I guess that with them also adding advert breaks that we spoke about last week, if they're going to move to weekly episode drops, Netflix have basically reinvented standard TV then? Well, I remember it like it was yesterday. So having to sit in front of your TV show and then wait a week for the next show. I mean, remember shows like Twin Peaks? Yeah, you needed when, that. When Twin Peaks initially aired. Man. That constant speculation, like every episode that I'd go into school after each episode and we start talking about who we thought killed Laura Palmer. And you don't get that on binge model. So Netflix looking like they're going to be stepping away from it. It's going to upset those people who like to just binge things. But personally, I've never been a binger. I I don't think I think that if you binge eight episodes in one go, you pay attention on the first episode and you pay attention on the last episode and everything in between just becomes a blur. There's, you're not appreciating the storytelling and the crafting. You're just there for the start and the end. If you want to do that, just watch the start and the end episodes and don't watch anything else. But the rest of us want to digest and explore how a story goes. But if you take binging away, people will just have to settle for the weekly drops or just wait on. It's as simple as that. Yeah. If they, were, if they want to wait until it's all there and then binge it in one go, that's up to them. It also means that yeah, I know that some of the bingers are saying, oh, if you're doing the weekly drops, I prefer to binge and it's going to be spoilers. It's like, well, now you know how I feel because I don't binge <laughs> stuff. It's like Cobra Kai all landed this weekend. I've only watched the first three episodes because I refuse to just watch it all in one go. And the spoilers are all out there now. So mm. I'm now having to really be careful because I've chosen to actually appreciate each episode bit by bit. And not all of us have time to binge. You know, some of us have these things called lives that we have to like plan things around yes even us 
Netflix have even greenlit a Assassin's Creed series, which is thankfully not going to be based on that film. It's going to be drawing from the game series instead. Which there's a wealth of material. Yeah, I mean, it, it gives them a lot to explore. Just drop the sci-fi thing. That's the stuff that annoyed me with Assassin's Creed. Didn't need that. I thought it was yeah. much more interesting. The same with the games. Hate the sci-fi element. It could be an interesting series. Given what they did with The Witcher, eh, yeah. people are quite confident with uh, what they will do with this. Now, former Disney CEO Bob Iger has been talking about the future of movies and traditional TV, and he says it's looking rather grim. He's not far off, is he? His input, with all the insider information that he's had through the years as he's been talking, is, is definitely someone to listen to. Um, he says he doesn't think movies will ever return in terms of going to the level that they were at pre-pandemic. Um, he says that the success of big streaming series launches like House of the Dragon, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power and The Mandalorian has led him to rethink some of the conventional wisdom he believed in. In his words, the movie industry used to argue that you couldn't create cultural impact without people going to the movie theatre around the globe that same weekend. I don't agree anymore. I probably made that argument myself at some point. Uh, but one thing he does see is a lot of upside in advertising in the streaming world, saying that what Netflix and Disney are about to do with the ad-supported tiers are smart moves. It gives consumers a choice. And we said exactly the same last week, that you'll have the choice of paying the extra to not have the advert or still be involved. He admits not all the streamers are going to survive. He's basically, he's been listening to our podcast. He's been, I, I was just about to say exactly that. <laughs> Bob, I, all you had to do was come and ask. We've been doing your job for you. Yeah, he said, I don't think all streamers are created equal. I don't think they'll all make it. There will be haves and haves not. And he's been rather bullish on his former company as they've leaned hard into streaming and the rapidly declining traditional media business. Linear TV and satellite is marching towards a great precipice and it will be pushed off if you're just in the channels business. You have a world of hurt. I can't tell you when, but it goes away. But he has also admitted, and again, he's been listening to us, he was wrong <laughs> about Apple TV+. Plus. Um, he was on the board of Apple when they decided to go into the streaming business, but he thought it would take them a long time to be successful. And he, in his words, they've done better than I expected them to do because it wasn't a business they were in at all. And he's clearly been listening to us praising Apple TV Plus constantly. So, Bob, thank you for being a huge supporter of the podcast. We absolutely love you, mate. <laughs> yeah, feel free to drop in on a show. Moving from Bob Iger, let's talk about Disney itself. It has been a significant uh, weekend for Disney, and I'm assuming you've been following it. <laughs> as much as I could. Not everything was allowed for streaming. A lot of the panels were kept behind... Well, not closed doors, but just in the open halls and not for streaming distribution. But over this past few days, there's been a wealth of stuff and we haven't got time in one show to go through it. Hey, they're taking three days to go through it all in, it, like, at the D23. So we're not going to fit it all in. So some highlights. So first of all, the trailer for Willow, the TV series. I am so on board with that. I'm more interested in this than I was in the movie. I'm not a big fan of the film. Mm. But I think the series can can do more than that. I think it can elevate it. I think the film's got charm. It's never one that I've completely loved, but I've kind of enjoyed whenever I've seen it. Uh, but this trailer just hooked me. Absolutely hooked me. It looks fun. It looks vibrant. It's It just looks great. Now, the trailer that I thoroughly, thoroughly am in for, and come on, I've been talking about this for a while, Disenchanted. I know you're a big fan. The return of Amy Adams as Giselle. Um, which this time we we now get to see what the plot line is. Now, we knew that it was going to be that she starts to 
get frustrated with the real world and wants the fantasy world that she comes from to invade it. But she didn't realize that that means that as a stepmother, she will become the evil stepmother and the playing on that aspect. That's it. I love it. I am completely in for this. 100%. You've got me on this, on this thing. It looks fun. It looks beautiful. And it looks like it's going to deconstruct the wicked stepmother approach of traditional fairy tales in the same way they enchanted broke apart all the like damsel in distress and the Prince Charming aspects. Can't wait. I cannot wait for this. Did you see the Little Mermaid teaser, which revealed the first look at Halle Bailey's Ariel? I did. Um, it looks very dark for the Little Mermaid. Yeah, that's what I thought. Cute as, she looks cute as hell. I mean, I think she's... she's. I mean, she looks great. Charming it. I'm, I'm not completely sold on it. And, you know, my reasons why I'm not completely sold on it, I will touch on later on in my review of Pinocchio. But it does look polished. It does look good. And she does look like a good bit of casting. It's a shame that, again, we're seeing all the... Uh, all the grown-up men out there getting upset that a character from a kid's fairy tale has been changed to a black mermaid. And you're you're a 30-odd-year-old male. Get out your mum's basement and grow up. This film isn't for you. For me, I'm looking at it going, you know what? This looks okay. Yeah. I I think it'll market to the right audience. I think kids are going to love it. I'm I'm probably going to watch it and just be a bit cynical about it because I'm not getting the Disney live-action adaptations. I don't see a point in them. Maybe Little Mermaid, with the darker approach that we've seen in that tease. Maybe they are going to try and do something different, but I'm not convinced yet. I'm just going to chuck in two Star Wars elements. There was Andor, uh, a new full trailer, and there was the Mandalorian Season 3 trailer, which takes uh, the Mandalorian back to Mandalore. Yeah, he's got to recover his honour after he removed his helmet. Uh, He's got to become, he's no longer considered a Mandalorian because he removed his helmet. It looks like he's going to offer more of the same. You know, we know that he's got Grogu back with him because uh, in Mandalorian season 2.5, a.k.a. <laughs> Boba Fett, we got to see all that play out. I feel sorry for the people who gave up on Boba Fett after the first two episodes. and went, eh, I'm not feeling it. Because it became the Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah, because it became the Mandalorian. They're going to be like, hang on, I thought he got rid of him. But um, yeah, it, it looks great. I'm still not completely sold on Andor, more because I, I just didn't have time for Rogue One and I don't like. Oh, really? I didn't I have didn't time for that, that character. No, it's, I, I just felt it was... It was unnecessary. It I, I, that's been my favourite of all the spin-off movies. Uh, not that there have been many, but I, I have, I've got a real enjoyment for Rogue One. I have lots of issues with it. Lots of issues, which we'll discuss. We'll have to do a deep dive into Rogue One yeah, at some point I'm so I can discuss my issues. But yeah, I, I'll still watch. I mean, I wasn't sold on the idea of a Mandalorian TV series, to be honest with you. And look what that did. So I will be watching and I probably will thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I'm not looking forward to Hocus Pocus 2. I never got Hocus Pocus. No, I'm with you on that one. I'm kind of intrigued by Haunted Mansion. I know they've now added Jared Leto as the Hatbox Ghost and Jamie Lee Curtis as Madden Leota. And Winona Ryder and Dan Levy are being added in in unknown roles. Joining you know, the lineup, Rosario Dawson, Lakeith Stanfield, Owen Wilson, Tiffany Haddish and Danny DeVito. What's not to love there? But it's the animated movies that got me interested. Yeah. From D23. So Pixar... Do we need an Inside Out 2? I would say no. Maybe not. But given the like, the majority of the voice cast aren't returning, except for Amy Poehler, she's definitely returning. But writer of the original film, Meg Lefauve, is back to write the second script. And I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. Maybe they can do it. But what I am looking forward to is Elemental, which comes out on June the 16th, 2023 which is uh, following the characters of Ember and Wade, who live in a city where all elemental folk live in harmony. 
and then they start to discover how alike fire and water actually are. It looks like charming, fantastical, magical Pixar magic. And then they're going to follow that with Elio, where a boy finds himself transported across the galaxy and mistaken to be the intergalactic ambassador for Earth. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Pixar are doing a you know, Inside Out 2 is a sequel, but Elemental, Elio, and then Win or Lose, which is their long-form streaming show following a softball team, shows that they've still got that touch of originality. And they're the ones that really connect with me. All their original films are the ones where they get to be a bit more creative, a bit more fun, and a bit more charming and personal. You know, Lightyear was a bit of a disappointment. We didn't need it. But in recent years, we've seen some absolute quality Pixar, and I'm hoping the next few years we're going to see even more. Yeah, Lightyear kind of suffered from being a corporate idea rather than from the heart idea. And that's been, I think, an issue for for Pixar, especially as they become more and more part of Disney, are unnecessary sequels. We didn't need a sequel to Monsters, Inc., I don't think. Nope. Don't think, you know, Cars would have had as many sequels if it wasn't for being part of the Disney family. And and that's Disney's thing. Let's sequelize everything. So yeah. we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, I, I'm not going to damn it with, uh, with speculation. I don't do that. So we'll see what it is. But I think, uh, I think it was the original was an absolutely unique masterpiece of a movie. So, yeah. so we'll see. We'll, uh, uh, absolutely see. Disney Animation themselves uh, have announced Wish, which will see a 17-year-old seeing darkness in her kingdom that nobody else does and makes a plea to the stars only for an actual fallen star to crash down and aid her on a quest. And for this, the biggest news on Wish is that Alan Tudyuk is going to voice a goat. (laughs) What more do you need? Alan Tudyuk is a goat, I'm there. Disney also unveiled the official title for its Lion King prequel, which is Mufasa, The Lion King, and will release in 2024, which is going to be a prequel to the live-action take on the classic 1994 animated one. At least this time it's going to be kind of a new story. Yeah even though it's a new story prequel and it's not just going to follow the exact same pattern. So I'm more interested in this than I was of the Lion King yeah. live action. Why did he call them live action? The CGI. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, we know that the Lion King live action version made 1.66 billion at the box office. So of course there's life in this franchise. I'm interested. I'm not passionate, but then we get to Marvel. I, before you do that, I'm going to just jump in. Um, Talk about Dennis Quaid and Lucy Liu uh, amongst the cast for Disney's Strange World, which looks like a thing of beauty. Yes. So let's move on to Marvel news. Now, there's been a lot of Marvel news all broken, all broken behind closed doors. Well, in a hall with loads of people in, but we weren't allowed to see it on streaming. But there was a ton of speculation, wasn't there, as to what the fans (laughs) wanted. And this is always the problem, what the fans wish list was for that event and what they've actually got. Now, funnily enough, so many news outlets were reporting, this is going to get announced, this is going to get announced, this is going to get announced. And they were basically quoting Redditors. Now, whenever we've said what we thought might get announced, we've said, we feel that this might get announced. We've not said for definite. And it's a good job we did because we protected ourselves there because we didn't find out any casting for Fantastic Four. We all, all that we found out was that Matt Shackerman is indeed directing. But we did get... Thunderbolts. We got the lineup. Yes, we did, and, and um, it's it's an interesting one because Thunderbolts traditionally in the comics, uh, uh, at least, is their version of the Suicide Squad. And I think with the cast that they've picked for this, 
it's given me an inkling of where it's going and how it differs now from from the Suicide Squad. Remind, reminds me more of uh, of uh, DC's The Losers, if anybody remembers that comic. Not not necessarily yeah. the movie, but the comic. Or, or Dirty Dozen, for for that matter. Yeah. Guys on a mission. So yeah, go through it, Andy. Who's who's the cast? So Julia Louis Dreyfus is playing Val. David Harbour is re- reprising his role as Red Guardian. Never saw that coming. Wyatt Russell will be back as John Walker, US agent. Kind of guess that one. Hannah John Kamen will be the ghost. Yep, did see that. Florence Pugh as Yelena. Figured that one. Olga Kurilenko as Taskmaster. Didn't guess that one. And good old Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes. The Winter Soldier. The, the film will serve as the final film in the Phase 5 of the MCU. The Phase 5 starts with Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, ends with this before moving into the big phase, as we're going to call it. Wakanda Forever footage was shown. A plot reveal It's going to revolve around Wakanda is at its weakest and the rest of the world is trying to capitalise on particularly vibranium from the kingdom and try to get the resources. Ironheart footage was, was shown. Dominique Thorne as Riri. And Anthony Ramos has been confirmed as playing Parker Robbins, a.k.a. The Hood. Great villain. And the series is going to revolve around the contrasting battles between tech and magic. Quantumania has confirmed that it will feed directly into Avengers The Kang Dynasty. And that Randall Park will reprise his role as Jimmy Woo. Give him his own series. Give Jimmy Woo his own series. I am there for that. The story will see Kang, in full Kang mode as well, take Cassie hostage to force Scott Lang to conduct a heist for him. And it figures out, doesn't it? It sounds cracking. Uh, Loki Season 2 has now cast Ki-Hu Kwan of The Goonies and Everything Everywhere All at Once fame. Uh, We don't know who has. And will also feature, again, Kang in full Kang mode. Echo footage was shown, and Vincent D'Onofrio was spied as the kingpin, wearing an eye patch now. So I guess when he was shot at the end, when the camera panned away, all that he lost was his eye. Now, trailers-wise, we got to see the Secret Invasion trailer. Oh, did we? Yes, there's a Secret Invasion trailer there, which has... It basically plays on the Nick Fury returning to Earth after he's been avoiding Earth for some reason or another. And then you get to see loads of shape-shifting scrolls adopting different it doesn't give anything away as to who we should trust and who we shouldn't but it it definitely is drawing from the comics where it was Furies working away from everything else that he uncovered that the scrolls had started to infiltrate society and it looks like a very good political thriller at the same time as being an action spectacle oh good because i know that armor wars has been announced that will follow on directly from secret invasion yep that's uh, going to be fe- feeding straight into each other. And we saw the Marvel Werewolf by Night trailer. Yeah, don't know what I thought about that. I thought it was a spoof, <laughs> in all honesty. I wasn't expecting them to lean so heavily into the black and white, basically universal horror kind of concept. Yeah, I thought it I thought it was a joke trailer. Uh, I mean, there was some... Uh, some severed arms. We didn't see anything much yep. of a of a werewolf. We know that composer Michael Giacano is directing, making his directorial debut. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I w- uh, perhaps it's me. Perhaps uh, my anticipation for a werewolf by night movie was more of a traditional werewolf by night movie. So, but you know, proof is in the pudding. I'll have to yep. say, wasn't charmed by it. For me, it's another example of like never. People say that Marvel follow the same formula, but they've clearly not been watching the TV shows because the TV yeah. shows are doing their own thing. Everything has its own identity. And this is a, it caught me off guard. And I'm hoping that when I watch the main thing, that I love the approach that they're doing and they're doing something a bit different than the normal Marvel formula. 
It's not the werewolf by night that I remember from the comics. No. But I think it's an interesting take. And if they stick the landing, this could be something that makes people sit up and go, oh, actually, Marvel has some life in it. And then, now, we spoke about this in the car. We predicted this. When we were on our way home from the cinema the other day, we were discussing about Tim Blake Nelson. We were. We did it. It was literally to the, to the day that we talked about it. Tim Blake Nelson will be reprising his roles as the leader. Now, cast your mind back to The Incredible Hulk, that movie with Ed Norton in it, and that's when it was teased that that's where it was going to go, and it's been nothing since. And we were only speculating, saying, like, wouldn't it be great if he was brought into it? And I says, maybe that's going to be the, the big, huge cameo that the saying is a surprise and mid credit sting reveal in the final episode of She-Hulk. That's the person who's collect, trying to get hold of her blood, and now it all comes together. Turns out, we predicted it. Only, only we predicted it too late to put on air last week. <laughs> this would have been, this would have been great if we had to yeah. come up with this last week because cool we'd have been like be. called it. But anyway, yeah, it was great news when we read that. Carl Lumbry and Danny Ramirez will also be returning from Falcon and Winter Soldier to star alongside all the team in Cap America: New World Order. Uh, to be directed by Julius Onar from a script by Dallin Musson and Malcolm Spellman from the series. Yeah. Um, if you're a fan of the Kevin Smith podcast, check out an interview with Malcolm Spellman, which came out just after uh, Winter Soldier landed on, on Apple. Very insightful. Uh, so there's a lot coming from Marvel in the near future. There wasn't a lot of great big reveals on the D23 as expected, but it was more just fleshing out some of the reveals that they gave us a couple of months ago at the Comic-Con. Am, am I right in thinking, Andy, they, they have another big event as well as this one? They're following the D23 event with their normal investor day, which will be all offline. It won't be streamed like this, like previous years because they've just done D23. Uh, but then next March, they'll be doing their six-month interim one, and that's when we'll probably get even more information. Yeah, we should be quite a long way down the line. It doesn't mean that they're not going to... Um... Uh, announce any cast between now and then uh, so you don't have to wait until till march but uh, as as kevin feige was sort of saying now that the director's on board it's all signed and, and sealed that uh, the director's got a hand in in the casting element so i wouldn't be surprised if we get something soonish i think it would be more a case of as news gets confirmed behind the scenes with contracts getting done we'll get regular news drops in the meantime moving on to paramount now the new Paramount president, Brian Robbins, has been speaking about the theatrical experience and the future of cinemas. And it seems that Paramount, funnily enough, with a Top Gun Maverick doing very well for them this year, is still very much committed to the cinema experience. I bet they are. I bet they are. They, they, they have more money now than they know what to do with. Over the year, they've seen films such as Scream, Jackass Forever, The Lost City and Sonic the Hedgehog all perform well for them at the box office. So... In his words, theatrical still has a great impact. The sort of theatrical release, 45 days later to streaming, that's working beautifully. And he's confirmed that the studio is doubling down on that approach. The slate consists of eight more theatrical releases uh, ahead of us. And then the plan is to boost that to 10 to 12 releases each year and then 12 to 15 in future years. He doesn't see streaming as the enemy, rather as an yeah. additional potential revenue stream. And it basically like has looked ahead towards films that they've got in the pipeline. Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, Scream 6, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, and Paw Patrol, the mighty movie. Yes, Paw Patrol. The first film was great and it did great business. <laughs> Paramount have a good lineup. And 
while they say it's a 45 days later to streaming, as was demonstrated with Top Gun Maverick, that's just that we'll move it to streaming after 45 days unless it does well over its first two weeks, in which case we'll extend the cinema release out as long as it's needed. So it's not that everything's just going to drop 45 days later. It's that that 45 days is the minimum. It's a good future for Paramount. Paramount have done really well with this uh, mixture between streaming and cinema. Yeah, I think they've pulled it off better than, I mean, Disney haven't really, really got a handle on it because they've they've gone for 30 days to 40 days before it drops on the streaming. And most people just go, eh, I'll give it a month. Mm. Absolutely. It's it's very promising to see. I mean, particularly with some of the names. I mean, Mission Impossible, that's going to be huge next year. So Paramount have a good future ahead of them. A quick bit of new update on news that we gave uh, a bit ago, that John Williams, after he scores the next Indiana Jones film, is thinking of retiring. Well, the 90-year-old has revealed in an interview that one thing might keep him out of retirement, and that's okay. a franchise that, despite it being around for many, many decades, He's managed to miss out on the chance Bond. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I never thought. Yes, he was asked in an interview, if you were offered to make a Bond score, would you do it? And his three-word answer was, I'd love it. Um, yeah, I'd love John, a John Williams Bond mm, score. Imagine. Th- yeah. Simply imagine. What, what, a way, what a way for him to finish his career. So next Bond film, please give John Williams a chance to deliver a score and let him bookend his career with the franchise that he's sadly not being involved in at all. And speaking of Indiana Jones, there was a, a shot from D23 of, of the Indy costume and also a lovely little shot of Harrison Ford reunited with Ki Hu Kwan. Of course, short round. So that, of course, has started speculation that he <laughs> may appear in the next Indiana Jones movie. But, but don't hold your breath. After... Starting off with a young actor promising career with Goonies and Indiana Jones, he just vanished. He backed away from the Hollywood circle. And it's only in recent years that he's making a comeback, particularly with everything everywhere all at once. And it's great to see his name popping up. I'd happily watch him in many, many, many films. Um, He was absolutely marvellous in everything everywhere all at once, which is now on Amazon Prime. So just get it watched. Film of the year, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Dan Lin. Now, we spoke last week about the possibility that Dan Lin will be heading up Warner Brothers' DC division. We did, and we kind of spoke too quickly because... Well, he's (laughs) been unable to agree on the terms of the negotiations, and it's all broken down for what we've described as quite a dangerous and toxic position to be in anyway. Uh, Studio Chiefs Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi are going to continue to head things up for now. Don't expect any new projects to be announced. They'll just be focusing on the ones that are already in development or due for release. Uh, But yeah, they're still looking for that Feige-esque character. And until they actually hire Feige himself, who will take control of DC and Marvel, and uh, then we'll we'll potentially get the Amalgam films. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get the big screen version of of, uh, the classic uh, Spider-Man versus Superman. We don't know what details of all the contracts caused the issues, but as we've spoken many times, you just have to look at the history of people in that kind of role for DC and realise that Dan Lane possibly wanted some protection measures in there so that he doesn't just get kicked to the roadside after one flop. Hey, Andy, if they were to ask us, you and I to do it jointly, what would be your lead project? I'll tell you mine while you're thinking. The question. The question is such yeah. an obvious uh, a HBO Max series, if not uh, if not a movie, yeah. can't believe I can't believe no one's tackled the question yet. 
So, you know, start low-key, as yep. uh, Marvel have done, and have some of the more interesting, nuanced characters that that you could you could slot in. Uh, like they did before they were trying to build a, a, a shared universe and did Constantine, for instance. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the question, that, that would be mine. Now, Booster Gold for me. I know that there's a huge following for Booster Gold out there who've been clamouring for Booster Gold to get, like, a TV series or a movie. Booster Gold is a win-win situation. Yep. Then, then, Legion of Superheroes. That would end yeah. with Superboy joining it. Yeah. Imagine they build up, you you have it as as the uh, all the recruited uh, Legionnaires to join the uh, Legion of Superheroes. And in the, the last mid-credit sequence, you get Superboy joining it. <laughs> Applause everywhere. Zaslav, if you, well, Zaslav doesn't listen to our show, let's be honest. So Bob <laughs> Iger, get in touch with Zaslav for us. And put him in our point him in our direction. We'll take the job. We don't we, we don't care about the terms. Just give us some money. Yeah. And then we'll take over the job. You can sack us after a year. I'll have earned enough money by then to have been made it worthwhile. But we've got our plans. We'll take it, take over the reins for the DC at Slate. Whatever you were paying uh, uh the the other guy, we'll just take that and halve it because we're not greedy. Yeah, yeah, that's we're absolutely fine. So there you go. Win-win situation. Um Speaking of DC as well, the recent reshuffle of their release dates got people speculating whether Shazam Fury of the Gods is being retooled. But David F. Sandberg, the director, has shut them all down. He said that the cut has been locked for quite some time. We're doing final mix, colour grading and VFX right now. Everyone's happy with the film. We're not going to work any longer on it. There's no reshoots. Definitely not shooting anymore. Okay. We also know as well that the Joker sequel has now added Catherine Keener yes, to the cast. So, Joaquin Phoenix, Lady Gaga, Zizi Beats, and Brendan Gleeson with Catherine Keener. The lineup in this film is enough to get me interested. We're not completely sold on the, being a need for a sequel, but the cast lineup is enough to keep us going. And sticking with DC, because there's a lot. It's like DC are trying to battle with Marvel this week for the news. They're trying to keep up to where they've not got a lot to talk about. But Susan Sarandon recently appeared on the Jimmy Fallon show and has touched upon her role in the Blue Beetle upcoming film. For those who don't know Blue Beetle, Jamie Reese, a Mexican-American background, finds a mystical scarab that grafts itself to him and gives him armor, flight, etc. abilities. Susan Sarandon has said that what's fabulous about it is it's the first Latinx hero that has his own movie. Even better, all the Mexicans, because his family is Mexican and all the actors were Mexican-American. And it's in Spanish, so the subtitles. And her character is the bad guy. I'm the white military industrial complex. So I had a fabulous time because there's nothing better than being bad. Interesting that they're going to be going for predominantly Spanish dialogue with subtitles. I think it's a quite a unique approach for what is a Hollywood production. Prey recently did it with the Comanche version. But all that they did was dubbed over the English spoken language. They wanted to make it in Comanche, but was shot down. Uh, I think it's better to do it. If you're going to do it, do it right and have them speaking in Spanish language, with subtitles for the audience. If you don't like the subtitles, well, unfortunately, just leave, learn to read. <laughs> looking forward to this. Yeah. Hey, I know what you're looking forward to, Andy. You're looking forward to a slice of glass onion. We talked last week that the trailer had landed for the latest Benoit Blanc Knives Out mystery. Anyway, reviews have started to filter through, which is pretty good to say it's still September, and it's not due till Christmas with apparently at this stage no cinema review, but the reviews are fantastic. Really, really fabulous and just makes my mouth water. 
in advance. Yes, uh, definitely looking forward to a bit of Glass Onion in my life. The never-ending story rights are being chased by multiple streaming services and studios. Of course they are. The tale, for those who've never seen Never Ending Story, follows a 10-year-old boy who happens upon a magical book that tells of a young warrior named Atreyu who's given the task of stopping the nothing, a dark force that's engulfing the wonderful world of Fantasia. Uh, the first half of the book was translated into the 1984 film by Wolfgang Peterson. With song by L- Lamar. Yeah. A lower-budgeted sequel in 1990 adapted elements of the second half with a wholly original story becoming a third film. Uh, it's been adapted for stage, animated series but legal rights issues over the properties have made further adaptations a complicated proposition over the years but it looks like we might be getting a return to that magical world and there's so much potential story elements within there as well as uh, some childhood trauma because uh, that film traumatized me when i was watching it in 1984 <laughs> and for traumatic films i mean olivia wilde must be going through a lot of trauma at the moment with don't worry darling mustn't she uh, is she the film itself has been getting mixed to low scores from the critics but it's the drama around the film that has kept it firmly in the news okay Onset tensions caused by the initial casting of Shia LaBeouf, who made Pew feel uneasy, followed by rumours of relationships between Wilde and Harry Styles once he was brought into the project, speculation that he was paid more than Florence Pugh, something that was denied by sources, but that doesn't stop people believing the Redditors out there. Wilde and Pugh apparently fell out, resulting in Pugh reportedly not attending promotional junkets for the film, although she was off shooting scenes for June 2 at the time, but why let facts get in the way of... uh... A good story, as they say. Um, And then... Harry Styles apparently spat on Chris Pine, even though he didn't. And if he had, Pine was laughing about it, which suggested the pair are actually on good terms. But why let the facts get in the way of a good bit of Redditor gossip? And you see where I'm getting at here. There's a lot of negativity around the film for speculation, rumour mongering and nonsense. And it seems like the whole film community have turned on Olivia Wilde after only a few years ago. They were all loving her for Booksmart. Yeah, female directors, you see. Yeah, they build them up to knock them down. But whatever truths there are in all this, one thing that it has seen is that all the attacks on Wilde for behaviours that, well, male actors and directors get away with are showing the hypocrisy in the film community. She cheated on her husband. She wasn't married. Wilde and Styles at hooking up on set is awful. Uh, Anyone remember Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie? Uh, Mm. The media controversy surrounding it Hasn't, however, hurt anticipation for the movie because IMAX and Warner Brothers are reporting that the IMAX live experience tickets have become the fastest selling IMAX live event to date. The paid sneak preview on September the 19th has sold more than 13,000 tickets across 100 IMAX locations in North America. 21 locations sold out in 24 hours. So there's no such thing as bad publicity. So it seems. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I thought the, the teaser was very intriguing very sort of twilight zone-esque yeah um I'm, I'm looking forward to it i'm looking forward to seeing the end result i know that the critical opinion has been very mixed but you know what as we've always said never take someone else's opinion on something that you're looking forward to always find out yourself is that the news andy let's just finish off with just a quick news the red one the festive film for amazon prime which will see dwayne johnson and chris evans star in a globe-trotting action adventure comedy has now also cast Kenan shipka who's from the absolutely marvellous uh, Sabrina series from Netflix. Jake Kasdan directing. I'm well and truly on board for this. Should be a good bit of holiday fun. Indeed. And that is this week's The News. Still with us, still with the film file. Thank you. Thanks for joining us as ever. And if you want to know more about the film file, hey, you can subscribe to this show by simply heading over to your favourite podcast platform, hitting that subscription button, leaving a like, 
and then just give us one big existential hug as you become part of the Film File family. And to know even more about the Film File, because there is more, all you've got to do is this. Head on over to Twitter. Follow us at Film File UK. Over there in the bio description, you'll find links to the Letterboxd profile where you can find out my thoughts and opinions and how many films I actually see by following my profile over there. You can head over to other social media platforms and stay up to date on all the show's drops. Just search for Film File UK. You'll find a page on pretty much everything. Uh, you can get in touch with us directly and communicate one-on-one with me via email. Just simply email podcast at filmfile.uk. Any thoughts, suggestions, top lists, bottom lists, any lists. I'm happy with lists. I like lists. Who doesn't love a good list? But I like a good list. So just fire over something over to us and we'll get back to you. And if your idea is great, we'll include it in the show. Yes, we will. And if you want to listen to the Film File on your radio, head over to nobarriersradio.com where you can listen every week to The Film File, every Thursday from 8 o'clock. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. And this week's Deep Dive is a personal favourite of Andy's. We're going to be talking about the 1982 British film Pink Floyd, The Wall, directed by Alan Parker and starring Bob Geldof. Or should I say, Sir Bob Geldof. The memories, the madness, the music, the movie, the wall. We don't need no education. So 1982's Pink Floyd, The Wall is live action. It's animated. It's a psychological musical drama. And it's based on Pink Floyd's 1979 album by the same name, The Wall. The screenplay was written by Pink Floyd vocalist and bassist Roger Waters. Boomtown rat star Bob Geldof plays a rock star, Pink, who is slowly driven insane by the death of his father and constructs a physical and emotional wall to protect himself. Like the album itself, this is a metaphorical and symbolic story with imagery and sound are symbolic to the storytelling, which takes us on a deep journey into the mind of Pink, but also into the mind of Pink Floyd's Roger Waters. It was a turbulent production. The creators not always happy about the final product, but the, the film was very well received and has gained a cult following over the years. Andy, this is, well, this is your choice for a deep dive. This is a film that you've got an awful lot of love for. We'll cast our minds back to when the album first came out. Uh, I was all of six years old, visiting my auntie's house, and my cousin was, who's about like, you know, 15 to 20 years older than me, uh, he was well and truly into all the 70s rock and prog rock and Pink Floyd. And he, I remember, casting my eyes on this white album cover with loads of bricks on it that when you opened it up 
and there's loads of beautiful artwork on the inside of strange visions crawling out of this broken wall. And I started listening to the album and it was my introduction to Pink Floyd. And I absolutely loved the music. I didn't quite get what the story was at that early age, but I loved the music of it. As I grew over the next few years, listened to it again and again, I started to get this story of like that. It, it was a new concept to me, an album that actually tells a story from start to finish. You can't just listen to one track from halfway through it because you need to listen to the whole thing. It's a journey that you go through. And so when the film came out and it ended up being a VHS rental release, because funnily enough, I was too young to see this when it got its limited cinema release. I remember just seeing all the visions that were in my head of the, how the story was telling played out in that bleak manner on screen. Alan Parker's film is very bleak. It's a very bleak yeah. telling. Apparently that the album was always planned as a film. The initial plan was to use concert footage interspersed with animation and live action. Yeah, they were going to use uh, Gerald Scarf's animation, weren't they, to, to, sort yeah. of, to fill in the narrative. But um, EMI balked at the idea. But then after the album released and was a huge success, it was Alan Parker who approached EMI with the idea to adapt it to film and was put in touch with Waters, who initially wanted a star in it. But as they fleshed out the script, they realised maybe bring in someone else. And they looked around and saw this new up-and-comer in the rock industry from the Boomtown Rats, Bob Geldof, and went, he could do it. And that's how he got cast. And the rest is history. For those who don't know the story of Pink Floyd's The Wall, I mean, Pink is a rock star who, before a gig, is reflecting on his life his loss of his father had a huge impact on him as, as a child. Um, his overbearing mother smothered him. His teachers who stifled and mocked his creativity. The war-torn years that he grew up in and his wife having an affair recently that he discovered have all broken him away from society. He's, he's basically converted all of these things into bricks in this metaphysical wall that he separates himself from reality in order to stop becoming emotionally impacted by things again. However, his fame is becoming another brick. He's struggling to accept it. He's starting to revolve down into complete despair and he's turning to drugs in order to numb that pain. And the drugs are starting to break his wall down. His mental ang anguish results in him trashing a hotel room, takes an overdose, but then he's pushed out onto stage where he envisions himself as a dictator commanding his followers to strike out and riot. How much of that back end of the film is real and indeed the album and how much of it is just his broken mind as he spirals down into internal trial that threatens to expose him and tear down the walls that he's created is unknown. But it is a deconstruction. Well, it's a look at a man deconstructing his own life and falling apart and ripping his own psyche to shreds as a result. It's a creative and powerful story. Waters drew on some of his own experiences. Waters himself lost his father at an early age and didn't have that father figure growing up. He also had broken marriages. So, but it also apparently draws on um, Sid Barrett's descent into yeah. drug-addled nature. And it's, it's all those experiences are thrown in to show fame and fortune don't always bring you happiness. The rock star lifestyle can really make you dwell on all the negative things through your life and draw you down into a dark spiral. It's a marvellous story. I've always loved the story of it from the album. And when I saw it showing on screen, the first time around, I was captivated by the, the Jevil Scarf animations. But every time that I watch this, I keep getting more and more from it. And I love the performances. I love the music. I love every aspect of this. And I still get completely drawn into the whole thing. 
I've seen people who watch this regularly who say that every time they watch it, they keep missing things because they're too busy headbanging or like rocking out or playing air guitar. I can kind of get that, but I find myself just drawn into the visual flair of it. Gerald Scarf's animation, that is the big key draw factor on this whole film. As you said, Andy, this is based on Roger Waters' growing alienation within Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd, and I've heard this not necessarily exactly from the horse's mouth, but from their old production manager who was with them right up to uh, the time the the wall was done. Uh, and as you said, uh, uh, Waters, it's a, it's a, it's a semi-biographical story. But the band started to grow alienated with each other and from their audiences. The hard reality of being in the public light, being a musician, played very much into the character of Pink. Now, the film went into development, as you said. The band, or Waters in particular, always had this idea for the film. It took Alan Parker to insist to try and uh, produce it and direct it in, in a very visual and unique way. Troubled uh, right from the get-go, uh, it was one of those instances where the creatives clashed during production. Mm. Parker himself described the film as one of the most miserable experiences of his uh, creative life. Apparently, Scarf yep. used to drink uh, Jack Daniels before going into uh, into the studios at the beginning of the day because he always knew what was coming up. It wasn't a pleasant experience. Geldof suffered cuts on his hands in the scene where he pulls uh, he's pulled away. Uh, the Venetian blinds, but the footage still remains in the film. Not a pleasant experience, all had. And, and to some extent, that sort of uh, angst and that sort of tensions, I think, plays out favourably into the film. I think that's reflected in, in yeah. uh, Bob Geldof's performance. It wasn't an, an actor, it hadn't done an awful lot at, at that stage and really had to pitch. His, his manager really pitched him the part. But this is a film that you love more than I do. Now, I'm going to say that I do not not like this film. It's one of those, It's, um, it's it, I find it ambitious, but I also find it uh, ambiguous at the same time. I find it uh, an interesting visual film. The elements of self-destruction haunt me through it, and I don't connect. I think that's the issue I have with this film. I find it hard to connect. I find, uh, I'm going to be metaphorical here, I find there's a wall between me and, and loving this film. It reminds me in parts of, of things like Listomania, the Ken Russell film. I think uh, mm. I think there are some absolutely spellbinding moments into it. And to some extent, this is the last great, truly great rock films. And, and there have been some 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 hugely uh, uh, amazing uh, rock films. I, I mentioned Ken Russell before that. Things like Stardust, uh, which is uh, That'll Be The Day, has been... Uh, an era where we produced interesting rock movies. And I think this is the end of it. I, I don't know what it is. It just doesn't connect with me for some reason. And, I, and I, I've never been able to get over that. I think it's ambitious. I find it, uh, I find it unremitting. And I think, it's, I think it's that element of it that I don't connect with, especially once it starts to get to that central sort of uh, fascist rally sequences. But that's why you and I are different. Yep. The back end of this film, as you know, it's clearly... Pink's complete self-destruction. Like I say, it, it's very, you could read it into this is just how he visualises that things are taking place and they're not actually taking place. But then the, the final shot is people in the aftermath of like some kind of riot and a boy picking up a Molotov cocktail and sniffing and pouring out 
the petrol, suggesting that maybe he did incite a riot from his fans and this has all happened and his career has just been completely destroyed. But there's a lot of ambiguity in it. But what I love about the film is the creative way it explores all the elements of his past that have led to his self-destructive nature. It, I, I, the journey of like how much his father meant to him, even though he didn't really get to know his father, that, you know, the, the shots of him as a young boy trying to latch on to any nearby male as a new father and realizing the loss that he suffered and how much it meant to him whilst his overbearing mother smothers him and stops him from really being able to, you know, grow and enjoy himself. They're brilliantly like presented on screen. And then, I mean, I've said it before, Gerald Scarf's animation, the visual style of his animation, the, you know, the, the birds flying down and like clawing bits of the land up to demonstrate the war, the, the bombs dropping. Then you've got towards the back end of the film, the, the marching hammers, which most people recognize from, even if you've never seen this film, you'll have recognized from uh, Another Brick yeah, in the, the Wall the when it got, video. yeah, it got released. The music video took some of those elements, but it, it all combines into, for me, one of the most creatively visual mediums. This is what film should be doing. This is what film can do that you can take like live action, oblique live action, put in some vivid imagery and add some great music and sound. And it all meshes together to tell a journey and a story. And it's a journey and story that does come from the album. And it's a journey and story that has been presented live. And in recent years, Roger Waters himself has toured um, his own version of Roger Waters' The Wall, which is a stunning production. And I would love to go and see live. Thoroughly recommend checking out like the, the version that got released at cinemas of Roger Waters' The Wall, where he just goes through the whole album, but has all this imagery in there again and has like the play acting moments around the wall through images of the wall. It's a story and it's a film and it's an album that has always been with me. And like I say, it's always one that I can't just dip into. I always have to start at the beginning and work through. I rewatch this film at least once every two years. I mean, I only rewatched it last week and I want to rewatch it again because I just completely lose myself in it. There's moments that are flawed. There's moments that are missing that were in the album that aren't put in. There's a few songs missing, but it works for me as a way to tell the film in a visual, tell the story in such a great visual way. Andy, if anybody wants to share in Pink Floyd's The Wall, where can they find it? You've got to purchase it. Uh, it's not available for free on any streaming services at this point in time. You can rent it or you can buy the streaming version or you can treat yourself to the Region 1 Blu-ray, which is well worth picking up. And that's this week's Deep Dive. We'll be back with another Deep Dive next week. And now it's time for some reviews. So this week's a rarity. Andy and I get to talk about one film that we've seen together. Yes, now Andy's back, we both got to see a meta-comedy crime thriller set in the world of the theatre, darlings. This is See How They Run. There's been a murder. It's a whodunit. Dead body. Must have been torture. Detective. What did he do that made you suspicious? And then all the suspects. Who's that? He's an overrated playwright. Celebrated playwright? Oh, I can't read me on handwriting. They end up in a remote country house. We are no longer merely suspects. We are also potential victims. <gasps> See how they run. Police, stand back! He keeps the key! Ah! Under the mat. Set against London's West End in 1953 at a party to celebrate the 100th performance of the classic Agatha Christie play, 
the mousetrap. Big time Hollywood film director uh, Adrian Brody is hired to shoot a big screen adaptation. But in true meta theatre storytelling, he's murdered. Enter, as much promised, a world weary inspector played beautifully by Sam Rockwell and a green WPC played with so much charm, Saoirse Ronan, who have to find the killer amongst the British theatre starlets. This turned out to be much more fun than I think we anticipated. We were both looking forward to seeing this, weren't we? But I think it was much more fun than than we ever expected. We were looking forward to seeing it simply from the cast list. I mean, it's got a cracking cast right across the board. And we're, we're both big fans of Sam Rockwell. So, you know, we wanted to see him headline something. We've said a few times on the show that Sam Rockwell's always a good support character and he just needs something to be where he's leading it and then you get a chance to see him lead it. And that was why we went to see it. And it was so much fun. It's got a script that's smart and sharp. It plays with conventions. It references all the conventions of the genre. It signposts them and storyboards (laughs) them at one point. It tells you (laughs) where it's going all the time. And then delivers each of them in such a meta and self-referential way, even though it knows that it's already mocked the conventions that it's going to play out. And it's it's so smart in the way it does it. Right from the offset, because Adrian Brody's character does a monologue at the beginning and more or less tells you all the setup before the setup takes place. Because it's not about uh, the whodunit, is it, really? It's, it, it, no. it's there to satirise and it's there to be, as we've both said, very meta because it's... It's it's a backstage drama. It's it's the crime pulp fictiony story that that plays to all the cliches. It, it's a bit of a police procedural. It's a lot of farce, British farce, and it's also at the heart of it a, a beautiful little relationship between mm. Sam Rockwell and Saoirse Ronan. Yeah, I mean Rockwell as the jaded detective who's clearly got with a British accent. With a British accent, he doesn't get to say much to start with, and I thought maybe they're disguising the fact that he can't do a good British accent. But when he does start talking, you know what? It kind of works. But he's got he's got something which is at the back of his mind. There's some trouble that he's had. There's something that he's lost, and you get to learn more about his character as it goes on. And then Saoirse Ronan as the as the up and coming police officer who wants to be a sergeant and who's taking notes of every, literally everything. She's noting everything down and she's brash. She's enthusiastic, a bit too overly enthusiastic, but she's the one who's piecing the clues together. Admittedly, she makes many racks accusations and she keeps like jumping, jumping the gun, but she's the one who constructs the evidence together to work out who the killer actually is. Whereas Rockwell's character more or less just stumbles onto the evidence. Two different characters, and they play against each other perfectly. But for me, it's Saoirse Ronan here who absolutely steals everything on screen and blows me away. I mean, every film that she's in, she always stands out for me. And this, she just gets a chance to have so much fun. And she is a delight to watch. From start to finish, you're just well and truly loving and want her to become a sergeant by the end of it i had a lot of fun with this i was chuckling i was smiling i was trying to work out who the killer was myself Uh, and that's a sign of a good murder mystery when you actually do care and you're starting to try to piece the clues together and every time that you think ah it's them and then you realize saoirse ronan's character is just going oh it's them and you go maybe it isn't them (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, what surprised me is is not just the charm factor of it is is the style the film is so stylish 
very much echoing yeah. Wes Anderson, I thought, especially uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. This was the debut, uh, directorial debut of, of Tom George, who cut his teeth on the BBC Three mockumentary This Country, and, and Charlie Cooper was in that, Ooh. turns up as a, as, a, as an usher. And it's got that sort of cracking, there's a gag every sort of 10 seconds feel to it. Sometimes very silly, sometimes even poignant. And also, I thought it was uh, evocative of, of 1950s London. Uh, so for a small film, it's got a lot of scope and an awful lot of style. So it's a, it's a beautiful looking picture. Like you say, the, the similarities with Wes Anderson in there. The car chase, well, it's not exactly a car chase, but the speeding cars getting to the country house retreat, which have the same kind of Wes Anderson, like camera starts pointing one way and then pans 90 degrees to focus on something. It has that buzz. It has that fit feel. It just doesn't have the colour palette. Of Wes Anderson one, it has a very British, yeah, old London feel to it. But it's the it's the having fun around the environment of the stage, and you know, Harris Dickinson as Dickie Attenborough is a delight. He's an absolute delight. It's great when you see people portraying real life characters in such a delightful way, and it doesn't do any discredit to Dickie's personality. It doesn't like, you know, you don't look at it and go, oh, maybe they shouldn't have done that because everything that he does is done in such a charming way that you just think, yeah, you know what? That probably was Dickie Attenborough. That's probably exactly how he would have um, reacted to this. This is one that when we walked out of, I was like, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And in the 48 hours afterwards, I was thinking back to it and going, I think I enjoyed it more than what I thought I did. And I want to revisit this. This is one yeah. that is going to get a revisit on frequent occasions because I had so much fun with it. I had so much fun with all the cast. Reese Shearsmith was absolutely great in it. Ruth Wilson, Ruth Wilson, another person who I love to see on screen as Petula Spencer, chewing up as much scenery as she could when she popped up on screen. The whole film was just, it's just a delight. If you're thinking these are quiet days at the cinema right now, do yourself a big, big favour. Go and see, see how they run. Okay, Andy, you've got Pinocchio next. Star light, star bright. First star I see tonight. Hello, Pops. <laughs> I wish I may. I wish I might. Have the wish. I wish tonight. Disney's Pinocchio. Rated PG. Streaming soon. Only on Disney+. Plus. Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio live-action remake. I say live-action, but given it's mostly CGI animation, then it isn't really, and this is something that the majority of these live-action Disney films suffer from. It's a wonderful-looking, yet inherently vacuous and bland take that adds little and takes away more from the already, in my opinion, overrated original animated movie. The story generally remains the same. The woodcarver with an obsession for clocks, Geppetto, here played by Tom Hanks, carves a wooden boy who is magically brought to life. Heading to school, he ends up in a series of encounters that play with his innocence and teach him lessons on morality, all the while being overlooked by Jiminy Cricket, his conscience in cricket form. Songs, perils and adventure play out lavishly, but underwhelmingly, as the runtime pushes way past the point of caring. Hanks appears to be phoning it in here, the normally shining actor who lends something wonderful to even the worst of films struggles to connect with the CGI around him, but he's far from the worst element here. At every step, the film lazily recreates moments from the cherished animation, not adding anything much, despite the wealth of elements from the original story that could be drawn upon, and lacks the shocks and terror that the old animation delivered so well. 
In addition, the forced inclusion of as many references as possible to pop culture names or other Disney properties makes sure for the film to feel extremely dated within the next couple of years. One scene with all the cuckoo clocks chiming and an abundance of Disney and Pixar characters showcased starts off as charming but swiftly becomes laborious. Going directly to streaming on Disney Plus may well have been the safest option for this soulless adaptation of the tale. And in an era when we've had more traditional takes on the old tale in recent years and still have the excitement of Del Toro's upcoming take ahead, this simply feels, much like Lady in the Tramp and other Disney live-action adaptations, a cynical exercise in nostalgia tapping. But the animation is grand. Zemeckis has finally managed to not deliver creepy dead eyes in CGI elements. So... That's a plus, I suppose. So, as you said, uh, this is visually great. But you'd expect that from Robert Zemeckis, who, let's be honest, has still given us one of the great classic movies of all time. But I don't know about his career. His, his career's been sidelined. There's nothing recently that, that's jumped out at all. Yeah. It feels to me, and I'm guessing from what you're saying, Andy, it just feels like, again, one of those Disney cashing in on itself uh, and add that to the pile of recent disappointments. What else have you got? I've also got Crimes of the Future that is on limited cinema release. Uh, This is Cronenberg's return to sci-fi body horror. It is time to start seeing. It is time to start speaking. It is time to listen. Cronenberg's return to sci-fi body horror is a ponderous misstep for the director, and one which proved to be quite a struggle to get through, not for the imagery on screen or the twisted aspects, but because it feels like a short film dragged out to three times the length it should actually be. Soul Tensor, played by Viggo Mortensen, and Caprice, Leah Sedu, are performance artists in an unspecified future where, after significant advances in biotechnology, humanity has seen various biological evolutions, including the disappearance of physical pain and infections. Soul has a disorder that forces his body to constantly develop new organs, which the pair then remove as part of their art in front of a live audience. But when the pair are recruited to infiltrate a cell of revolutionary evolutionists who believe that the body can be modified to digest plastics and hazardous waste, a chain of events are set in motion that look to change the pair's outlook on their lives forever. There's a lot going on in this film, as you would kind of expect from Cronenberg, and a myriad of ideas are thrown into the mix, presented with an almost sensual fascination with the body horror aspect of surgeries and mutations. But the coldness in approach makes for a very hard watch. The cast are all strong in their parts. A particular standout role by Kristen Stewart as an investigator at the National Organ Registry steals quite a lot of moments. But the film is sadly weighed down too much with concepts that are not fully explored in any great detail and themes that Cronenberg has tackled elsewhere in much, much stronger ways. Much like Crash, this is quite a dense Cronenberg film to approach. And even as a lifelong fan of the director, I found myself struggling to keep interested in the story. By the end, I felt that maybe I'd watched some bizarre performance art of which the characters partake in, but not really connected with any of it. Maybe this will be one that I'll revisit sometime in the future. But for now, the end result was a film that left little to no impression and was swiftly forgotten. You know what? I just not been drawn to this. And and, and a bit like you, Andy, I've... 
I followed Cronenberg through most of his career with probably the only last few years, his, his last few features that I've sort of dropped off as he's become more introspective. But I still think he's always a worthwhile director to to talk about. You know, last week we talked about Dead Zone. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm just for whatever reason the the plot, the images I've seen, the trailer j- just aren't doing it for me. I, I think this might be probably one of those Cronenberg films, as of a lot of his films over recent years, that that I just won't get to see. So that's the end of the reviews. But what have we got coming up this week? I do know that Kevin Smith's Clerks 3 is out this week, I'm right in thinking. Yes, at cinemas this week, Clerks 3 is getting a release across the UK. Uh, Jackie Brown gets a re-release for the 25th anniversary. 25 years since Jackie wow. Brown came out. I'm teaching wow. Quentin Tarantino right now in my film class and then just looking back on Pulp Fiction and going, I was at the British premiere for that. <laughs> it makes you feel really old, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, Moon Age Daydream has a limited release across the UK as well this week. I'm intrigued. I'm a huge Bowie fan, so I'm intrigued. I've heard mixed things about it. Uh, I don't know if the family have been involved in this one because they certainly weren't involved with the last Bowie film, so... Uh, I'll I'll do some digging before, but I I would like to see it at some point. Uh, Over on streaming, Now TV and Sky sees Marry Me, the Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson rom-com. Really? came out a few months ago. Does anybody really, really, honestly, come on. Netflix has Do Revenge, which stars Maya Hawke and Camila Mendes, which is a subverted Hitchcockian dark comedy featuring the scariest protagonists of all, teenage girls. Over on Amazon, Goodnight Mommy. Twin brothers arrive home to find their mother's demeanour altered and face covered in surgical bandages and begin to suspect the woman beneath the gauze might not be their mother. Over on Disney+, Plus, and it always feels weird when something like this lands on Disney+, Plus. Shape of Water, or Grinding Nemo as I like to refer to it, <laughs> um, lands this week. I'll give that another go. <laughs> I, I wasn't as enamoured by, by that as everybody else was. But I, I, it's worth revisiting. Yeah. I don't have the love that everybody else had. There's a mixture of films across the streaming services. Which ones we'll be reviewing next week? You'll have to tune in to find out. And that's about it for this week, folks. And as ever, uh, it's always a joy to bring the show to you. But before we go, do this every week, we'll tell you about our neat thing. Something that we've seen, read, ate, you name it. If it's neat, we're going to tell you about it. Andy. Well, you know that I like my game shows. You know I like my quiz shows. I've mentioned them a few times. One of my favourites has returned for another season, and that's Richard Osman's House of Games. I don't know that one. Every day, Monday to Friday on BBC Two, each week he has a different four guests competing against each other with a series of really interesting, challenging rounds to see who can take home the trophy for the week. But each day there's like prizes on offer for the winner of the day, which is sometimes things like a dart, Richard Osman's House of Games dartboard, sometimes just salt and pepper jars. Some of the prizes are really poor quality and they joke about it so much. Some of them are pretty good, like the decanter. I would love a Richard Osman decanter. But there's also a Richard, <laughs> Richard, Richard Osman action figure, which is hilarious whenever someone decides to take that. But it's a great little show. It's on its fifth or sixth series now. They do like 100 episodes per series, five per week. And what makes this one so much fun is the styles of rounds are ones that you can sit at home and play along with. And you can try to decipher that, like answer them yourself. There's a great music intros round where it'll start playing the intro to a song and then it'll fade it out. And they have to stop the timer when they think the first lyrics started up and I sit at home with a stopwatch ready to, and I usually do quite well on them, but it's the banter between them because he has the same guests over the week. 
seeing them after one person wins on the first day and another person wins on the other and they get very competitive and they're joking and they're bickering amongst each other and it's a great atmosphere it's a fun half hour each day whether you like quiz shows or not it's just great to see him interact with um, other celebrities in such a relaxed manner it reminds me what i love about this show is it reminds me of when i've got friends around for board games or quiz games right yeah I, I actually have seen it i as you talked it through I, I have seen it and and that's kind of the vibe of it yeah it's that kind of you get that fun feel of like you are spending an evening with friends just challenging each other you can play like i say you can play along at home i love richard osmond's house of games i love richard osmond i think that you know he's he's such a great personality for someone who was basically behind the scenes on so many quiz shows and designing quiz shows ever since pointless when he's become to the forefront he's really grown as a celebrity personality and house of games is the perfect showcase for everything that he loves and everything that he can bring to early evening entertainment so that's bbc2 Monday to Fridays, 6pm. My neat thing this week is something that I hopefully very soon will be able to share with you. Now, my friend uh, Keith Williams is a scriptwriter who's probably best known for creating a lot of the, the music videos that you will have grown up with. He created the concepts for Ghostbusters, created the concept for the very first video that you saw on MTV, Video Killed the Radio Star. He's, he was integral in the creation of, of, of music video. Uh, Alice Cooper's Man Behind the Mask, Billy Idol's Dancing With Myself, back in the days when video music videos ruled the world. He directed a short film starring a very young Robert Downey Jr., produced by Joe Dante. And he's just created a short film, which he's paid for himself, which I got to see the finished cut the other day called Morgue, which is a, a 15 minute beautifully uh, shot horror movie that will be coming to YouTube very, very soon. Uh, I'm so proud of him. Is uh, is one of my oldest and dearest friends, uh, almost family with with that closest friends, uh, uh, and it's just a delight. It's a it's a perfect horror movie with what all short films should have is is a great little twisty ending. I won't say a twist of an ending, but a twisty ending, uh, full of atmosphere. Keith paid for this himself, and everything that you see on the screen is is his blood, sweat and tears. And, and what anybody ever does when they when they make their own films, they have to be creative to get it onto the screen. It's going to be available to watch soon. I'm not quite sure how. I'm hoping that there's, there's some sort of funding service so uh, you can donate to it, but I'll, I'll have a word with Keith. So, so my neat thing this week is Keith Williams' short film, Morgue, hopefully coming to a YouTube channel very soon and it'd be well worth your, your time just to spend 15 minutes and enjoy it. And I'll give you more details when they land. And that, folks, that's it for this week. We'll be back again with another film file next week. Andy, any plans for this week? Uh, well, it's uh, my 21st wedding anniversary. Oh, my goodness. Week. Congratulations, sir. So uh, I'm not sure what we're doing for it. The wife's, wife will be working during the day, so we need to find something to do in the evening to celebrate 21 years together without killing each other yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she she deserves a medal for putting up with me for all Well, I've, I've spent time with the Andy. I can only... The woman's a saint. Especially now that she's also got <laughs> dub, double the trouble because my daughter being pretty much exactly the same as me with sense of humour and wit means that she's constantly getting bombarded from both sides with the same kind of puns, the same sarcasm, the same attitudes... 
she's bless she's, her she, she's I a say. saint she's an absolute <laughs> saint uh, but yeah 21 years my goodness well hopefully we'll catch up uh, you and I in person to see maybe Clerks 3 in the meantime Andy if you don't eat your meat you can't have any pudding how can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat so it's Stiddle Stiddle oh good grief it's Stiddle it's Stiddle it's Stiddle <laughs> I'm sort of postcard what a stiddle is. I don't know, and I'll remember to edit that bit out next week. <laughs> yes. I was just listening through. Going, I'm sure this is off mic stuff. I'm pretty sure this was I don't know. then it went, oh. Don't know oh. what happened. 